Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Alvin Orloff's Disasterama has earned some wonderful praise. Michelle T. calls it heartbreaking and hilarious, sexed up and political. Disasterama is a deeply personal coming-of-age story. Praise for Trevor Healy's Falling has been equally excellent. Edmund White writes, This is a wise, brilliant story that will be read for many years to come. They're both very good blurbs. Um, Alvin Orloff began writing in 1977 while still a teenager by penning lyrics for The Blow Dryers, an early San Francisco punk band. He spent the 1980s working as a telemarketer and exotic dancer while concurrently attending UC Berkeley and performing with the Popstitutes, a somewhat absurd performance art homocore band. Orloff currently works as the manager of Dog-Eared Books, one of my, one of my favorites, by the way. Uh, every time I'm down in San Francisco, you gotta, you gotta go to Dog-Eared Books. Um, there's great burritos like down the street too, of course. Um, a literary hotspot in the heart of San Francisco's Castro District. He lives in San Francisco. Recipient of a Lambda Literary Award, two Publishing Triangle Awards, and a Violet Quill Award, Trebor Healy is the author of three novels, A Horse Named Sorrow, Fawn, and Through It Came Bright Colors, as well as a poetry collection, Sweet Son of Pan, and three collections of stories, A Perfect Scar, Arrows and Dust, uh, and the recently released Falling. He co-edited with Marcy Blackman, Beyond Definition, New Writing from Gay and Lesbian San Francisco, and co-edited with Amy Evans, Queer and Catholic. He lives in Mexico City. Tara Jepson is a writer, skateboarder, comic, and actor living in Los Angeles, California. Her novel, Like a Dog, was released on the Sister Spit imprint of City Lights Publishers in September of 2017. She's also been published by The Believer, Exo Jane, and by the SF Weekly, among others. She co-hosted legendary San Francisco queer literary open mic uh, Kvetch with Kirk Reed at a gay men's bathhouse for over 10 years. These days, Tara co-hosts monthly comedy show Josh with Michelle T. We're thrilled to have such talented writers with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Hi, guys. My name is pronounced Tara, if you care to call it out. Um, Bucky, there you are. I heard your voice. Well, good evening. Are you all here after work? Um, I have an office job now, so it feels like a way to build affinity with others to talk about how normal we are. Um, so I'm going to come in the middle. God damn it. I'm going to start in the middle of the book. I don't, it doesn't matter. Okay, so um, at this point, the main character is in a strip club with a bunch of her friends, and she's very drunk, and just saw one of the customers there slip his digits in the crevasse of a young woman. And so um, she gets, like, upset about it and starts pushing through the crowd. That's where we are. This is what's happening. 
The fuck, man, I yell. Heavy chairs covered in pleather push against my thighs, and it feels like trying to run in three feet of water. My pants slide down my ass, but I'm so focused on the finger man, I half yank them up with one hand and pull myself forward with the other. Finger Fingerson tries to act cool like nothing happened. Though even in this doldrum light, I can see he's red-faced and uncomfortable. Maybe that should have been enough for me if I just cared about him learning his lesson, but it's not. Dude, keep your hands off the girls. Could I have thought of something less pimpy? I keep one hand on a table to stay upright. It's cool, it's cool, he says and tips his beard toward me to signal. We're good. It's cool with you, maybe, but it's not cool in the world, I scream. Are you serious, bitch? Hey, can somebody help me out here? Fingerling Potatoes looks around wildly for backup. His face is pinched and calculating. I finally get to him and grab the lapel of his suit like we're in a movie. You wanted a woman to touch you, right? I holler. Look, dream come true. All consensual. Now get the fuck out of here. All right, Mills. A deep voice booms behind me and a fat man, a fat hand grabs my shoulder. I lurch to the left, falling on all fours onto that disgusting carpeting. I look up to see a tall security dude with a goatee. There's no queer woman my age who did not fall onto the filthy carpet of a strip club in San Francisco in the 90s and like <laughs> never see their hands the same again. So anyway, Fonz, you can come up here if you want. I can save you a seat. Um, uh, anyway, I look up to see a tall security dude. Like how many times was I in a weird like fake cop outfit in a fucking strip club very drunk in the 90s? Anyway, so this is what, so this is writing from experience. Um, I look up to see a tall security dude with a goatee reaching down to grab the back of my shirt, and next thing you know, I'm upright again, trying to arrange my feet on the floor. You need to leave now. Carter is, so this is Carter's this guy that she's kind of flirting with. Carter is right behind this enormous man who looks like a dumpster full of boulders. And that fucking ass man gets to stay? I point at the guy I was trying to humiliate and slap the security guy's arm. Not too hard. He was grabbing the girls. He has to leave. None your business, ma'am. Let's move out now. With an iron grip on my collar, he pushes me, and I walk like a puppet. A few people stare, but most just continue with their lives. I'm sorry. I'm drinking a La Crux. Um, okay. Uh, with an iron grip on my collar, he pushes me, and I walk like a puppet. A few people stare, but most just continue with their lives. Um, oh, Carter's voice. My S. Okay. Carter finds me sitting on a parking block. Gravel and cigarette butts pool at my feet, and a little bug with a pincher on its behind wiggles around. A couple tall streetlights illuminate the lot. I see a head shop across the street. It has a tastefully simple neon sign that says, Smoke Shop. Carter rubs his eyes with his palm and laughs. He shakes his head. His dark brown hair flips across his forehead, and he loses his balance and tips backward off the curb. Now I'm laughing, and we both lose it on this filthy spot. There's a small patch of grass behind us that I'm sure is all hobo pee and broken glass. We writhe around in the grossness of this spot, flailing arms and kicking, like siblings in a pile of leaves. I deliver a few small punches to Carter's chest. I want him to play with me like a puppy. He jabs at me. We're small sun bears who can't help provoking each other. Abruptly, the vibe feels flirtatious. I haven't had sex with anyone in months, so maybe I would? I can't decide. It creates so much BS to get involved with another human. I've by and large successfully sworn off dating. I'm not sure I know what I like anymore. Historically, I just date whoever likes me, and they're always alcoholics. Carter and I laugh and hiccup, and then a different door guy comes around and says we have to leave. We walk past an enormous white SUV that's hemorrhaging fancy-dressed people in their early 20s. They stream over to Cheeks. Cheeks is the name of the club. To Cheeks like ants. A girl glances at us. This is in the Bay Area. I don't think I said that. In San Francisco. A girl glances at us and giggles and says, whoa. 
I guess we look messy. Then she turns and tip-taps along with her friends in high silver heels and tiny jeans. I try to imagine what she looks like naked with such small hips. It baffles me to see such small adults. I bet she has the tiniest vagina. You owe me a lap dance, Carter grins. I was just getting started, then you had to play superhero from Feminism 101. You sounded just like my sister. Hey, let's go get some rolling papers at that head shop. We cross the street and pass into the bong zone. Long, scratched-up glass cases hold myriad bongs of all shapes. At the back of the room is a doorway with a heavy black felt curtain hanging over it. There's a paper sign taped above the door that says, Joy Story. I walk directly through the curtain. I almost bump into a table that has a display of novelty pasta. You can get penis shapes or boob shapes. I imagine bachelorette parties of rapturous drunk ladies using plastic forks to spear long chains of penis pasta in red sauce. I walk over to a wall of dildos of all colors. Neon green, hot pink, shaped like a dolphin, marbleized silicone, shaped like a torpedo. Butt plugs of all sizes from the negligible to the unimaginable. <laughs> Carter sidles up next to me. That's a pretty big arm, he says about a silicone fist. Yeah, I guess I don't feel drawn to that one, but I respect the people who are, I say. There's a rack of clothing I have to check out. Well, this is super sexy. I holler through the store and pull out two outfits made of clear plastic wrap type material, one in each hand. The lady one has a pink bow at the neck and some bunched up plastic that I think is supposed to look like lace. The man one has a black bow tie and some flimsy stitching that wants to look like a tuxedo. They embody the embarrassment of sex for me. One time an ex of mine begged me to wear a cheerleader uniform for him. We argued about it for a week and then I gave in. I mean, I really did. I really do want to turn on whoever I'm sleeping with. I let him get one for me. It was a size too small. When I put it on, I never felt less like myself in my whole life. The waist of the skirt cut into me like a dull butter knife. Wide red and white panels of polyester shot off my hips. The little vest rode up on me and exposed the sausage roll of my middle. I walked out into the living room and let my boyfriend at the time, Jim, see me. I tried not to look as horrible as I felt. I sat on his lap, we had sex, and I made him sign a typed contract that he would never ask me to wear it again. I know this is weird, but what I feel sexy in is a big pair of cotton granny panties. I think if they hang just right at my hips, that's hot. I think a shitty old tank top is sexy. I guess I just love anything mundane. Very subtle cues of line and proportion. I like when a person has some extra pounds in them. I like when their pants don't quite fit right. I despise arrogance and prejudice. We have to get these. Carter grabs a couple suckers shaped like boobs and throws them on the worn linoleum checkout counter where a bored 20-something butch girl is sitting and reading a fat book. It says Bukowski in thick uppercase letters down the spine. She looks up with shaggy, dirty blonde hair hanging in sleepy brown eyes and regards the pile of boob suckers. Those are pretty cool, she says, and goes back to reading. She peeks up at us one more time, takes some mental notes, and goes back to her book. It really seems like you're hitting on me, I say to Carter. Is that okay? Carter asks. Yeah, I say. I think I do want to see where this goes. Let's go somewhere else and have another drink, though. I can feel myself fading, plus I'm not ready to face being naked. Carter pays for the candy and we walk out. There's an inflatable sheep hanging from the ceiling, so I jump up and bat it. Don't do that, the, co the counter girl says drolly. We walk out into the night and Carter looks down the street. There's a place called Henry's. It's a piano bar, he says. It's a gay bar. Sounds good to me. We link arms and weave down the sidewalk to Henry's. I like the feeling of my arm intertwined with his, the rush, the uncertainty. Henry's has no windows and a huge bear of a door guy sitting on a tiny stool. Bear on a unicycle, I say. What's that? Nothing. We order beers. We sit on tall chairs next to a narrow drink ledge in a long mirror. We each take huge gulps of our drinks and an older gay dude walks over, sipping something clear through a tiny red straw. Hi, he says with a long dip to the eye and a wink. Hello, Carter says and gives a cheers clink with his glass. Have you two been here before? The man asks. No, I say I don't live here though. 
Where are you from? San Francisco. Oh, the big city. Oh, that's right, because they're in the valley. They're in the valley, and they're at a strip club in a small, in like a Fresno Week type of town. Oh, big city. So you two are together? We look at each other. Oh, we just met today, I say. Because they met earlier when they were skating in a situation. Uh, we just, wait, I'm just trying not to abuse your attention, so I'm keeping track of time. Um, okay, are your friends going to worry about you, I ask? No, I texted Oz and let him know I'd see them tomorrow. Cool, I say, I feel a little shy. I'm not immune to the shot of dopamine in my blood. Even though this is a one-night thing and I'm certain I'll never talk to Carter again, I feel a soft rush of attraction. I hope you plan on staying at my place tonight. We don't actually have to have sex just because you're staying over. A huge smile breaks across his face. His dark brown eyes light up. He has thick black eyebrows that are almost a monobrow. His shoulders are somewhat naturally broad, though he's not overly muscled on the top part of his body, like most skateboarders. I like how skateboarders exist in their bodies, like they know they're permeable. They're not bracing against getting hurt because they know it's inevitable. I do want to stay with you. I can't put into words what I want to happen there. Can we just see how it goes? Yeah, he smiles. I look down at my drink. A disco ball kicks in overhead. A drag show starts. I'm going to stop there. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Hi there. So, yeah, we all know each other from San Francisco in like the 90s. So this is a great little kind of reunion. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Um, and then when I left San Francisco, I came here and I worked with all these guys. There's a whole row of them. Um, and we um, we work for a nonprofit that does economic justice work. So I really wanted to. Um, did Manny get here yet? No, I wish. Oh, well. there's nothing there. Anyway, um, so anyway, um, now I do immigration work in Mexico. So I want to read um, a story about that uh, for these guys. So this one's called Abelardo and Rodrigo. I would never judge her. I liked her. I think she liked me. I sometimes thought she even had some kind of crush on me. She seemed touched that I liked her two boys. When I had first appeared at the refugee house with my coloring books, the two boys had made a beeline for me and both hugged my thighs, shouting with glee. Abelardo and Rodrigo were four and six, and I would soon learn that both had been raped in their harrowing escape with their mother from Honduras after the murder of their father. All the stories at the refugee house were like this, families mostly of women and small children without husbands, but also pregnant teen girls, trans youths, young men by the dozen heading to the U.S. to find brothers, a mother, what have you. All of them fleeing the northern triangle of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, where violence, gang shakedowns, and threats and poverty made life increasingly unbearable, and where the homicide rate rivaled that of war-torn countries and other parts of the world. I knew the boys were happy and shouting because of the coloring books, but I also knew this work, now that I'd been doing it for three years off and on. I knew how quickly you could gain the trust and love of a small child if you smiled and brought the promise of fun and attention, and ultimately just continued to show up and listen. I liked the work because it was easy. Children delighted me, and I had the special privilege of being one of the few males in such settings among children who had lost many, if not most, of their older male role models. It was also good for my Spanish, as children are quick to point out grammatical and pronunciation mistakes and love being in a position of authority with an older person. I marveled at this very small way of empowering them with no real effort on my part. I wondered sometimes, of course, what they really thought of me in their inner world or how they would remember me 10 or 20 years on when I hoped with all my heart that they would have lives with some semblance of stability and safety, if not prosperity, fulfillment, and happiness. 
They were here under the care and sponsorship of an NGO that had grown out of the work of an order of nuns called the Scalabranianis, whose mission it was to minister to refugees. I had begun with the nuns three years ago and was impressed with what they had built and the system they had set up with the government, giving them three months in which to establish these migrant status as refugees, a not so easy task, even though many if not all of these people were fleeing murderous gangsters, policemen, soldiers, and the like. The refugee house also offered job training, basic stuff like cooking, sewing, rudimentary computer skills, and now medical and psychological care, along with language classes as there were <coughs> now many Portuguese and French-speaking Africans. I was here because I liked to come to Mexico for a few months at a time. I'd lost my wife and only child five years before when I had crashed our single-engine Cessna Skyhawk west of Bridgeport in a freak lightning storm. I had walked away physically unscathed in a daze. We had crashed on the northwest side of Eagle Peak, and the way we made impact had destroyed the entire passenger side of the plane while leaving me relatively untouched. It was the kind of thing when I came to that was so unacceptable I entered a kind of panic that, land, that lasted on and off for years. I'd had to leave my job. I wouldn't be the first person from up north who found sucker in Mexico. I started with small beach towns like anybody else. The beauty and simplicity and kindness of the people was consoling. I was an animal, I realized then, who had gone through a traumatic experience. There were lots of us. My son was a college student, 20 years old, studying geology and climate change. He was everything to me, even more so than my wife, I must admit. Candace and I were partners, certainly, and good ones. We'd built a good life together, raised a good boy, but the romance and sex had faded, and I never knew how to bridge the gap without them, which frustrated her. Candace was a physician and increasingly spent more and more time with her work, as did I, doing pharmaceutical drug research. We admired and respected one another and never considered divorce. Things just changed. But Gordon, he filled in all the parts of me that were missing. Extroverted, enthusiastic to try everything, he expanded my horizons daily. There's an almost romantic love that sometimes happens between parents and their children. I don't mean anything inappropriate or creepy by that. I mean only that kind of innocent type of young love that makes you wake up thinking about them, where they are, what they're doing, and when you'll see them next. We backpacked through the high Sierra, we scuba dived. He liked my company, even preferred it to his own peers and friends. He was a gift, and now he was a lost gift that haunted me. After a while, I grew tired of the beaches and their uncomplicated beauty. I traveled inland and began to explore Guadalajara, Morelia, and ultimately Mexico City with its ancient, colonial, and modern history. It was there in the capital one day while riding the metro that I crossed paths with a certain little boy who played an accordion for spare change. He smiled at me in the way that only a child can, cutting through the differences that we conspire to believe exist between a 60-year-old American chemist with an advanced degree, two houses, three cars, and an airplane, and a child who most likely lived in a tin shack on the far edges of the city, who was focused almost exclusively and completely on food and whose future was dubious at best. His, his mus musicianship was not good, though it was spirited. His smile, on the other hand, rivaled that of someone you loved with all your heart. I began to look for him and one day found him again on the same subway line. It was later in the day and the train was crowded and he had ceased playing and was sitting on the floor leaned up against the door that connected one train to the next, the accordion propped up by his side while he consumed an entire quart of chocolate chip ice cream with a relish I immediately envied. In that moment all was right with his world, his animal world I should say, and what else is there in the moment? He had, <coughs> he had more than I had then. Though I immediately thought of the folly of his joy, that he was malnourished, perhaps even older than he looked, and ice cream was the last thing he needed to spend his hard-earned money on. He needed fruits, vegetables, vitamins, a better protein source. He would end up short with an underdeveloped brain. Perhaps he had already arrived at the initial stages of that. 
But how could one deny him his pleasure, and how could one sentimentalize it? I felt guilty and impotent and resolved then to find a way to help these children. I couldn't save him or even help him, giving him more ice cream money. He was like a drunk or a drug addict that you gave spare change to with reservations, knowing you were feeding the problem just as much as you knew you were keeping him alive for another day, a moral conundrum all of us know too well. I needed a strategy and organization on the ground. I wrote to an Episcopal priest I knew back home. I wasn't a religious man, but I asked Father Ken because he was something of a radical who had come to the priesthood after years as a junkie. He had committed himself since to serving the most vulnerable populations and currently pastored at a small church in East LA. He'd been involved in the immigration battles for years, providing sanctuary, food, clothing, whatever he could. He had spent a good deal of time on the other side of the border as well, working with NGOs addressing the refugee crisis that emerged with the, with the social collapse in much of Central American society, a good deal of it brought on by US intervention, exploitation, and the deportation of gangsters like those of MS-13, who now plied their vicious violent trade, learned on the streets of America's city of dreams, Los Angeles, from San Salvador all the way to Juarez and beyond, right back into the United States. Most Americans couldn't or wouldn't see the connections. I had ignored them too much, I had ignored them too for much of my life, but I was different now. I couldn't turn anything off. Of course, most Americans hadn't killed their own wife and child by accident. Father Ken connected me to the nuns, whom I then visited at the refugee house, offering my services as a volunteer. They told me I could do anything. I said I liked kids, and Sister Roberta smiled and said, good, because while the mothers were busy with their job training, with their job training, 15 little kids were running around unsupervised on the concrete playground of the former parochial school that served as a refugee house back then. Come whenever you want to, Sister Roberta told me, showing me out. She was sorry she had to leave so quickly, she apologized, but she had just received a text that a teenage boy from Honduras was in the hospital, having lost a leg, hopping a train. She needed to get down there to try to secure a place for him at the refugee house and start the process of hopefully getting him papers to stay in Mexico and not be, de and not be deported back to Honduras. All I could do was nod and thank her. How old was he? Fourteen, she said. I decided to leave and come back in a day or two. I had expected more structure, but was encouraged by the obvious need. I went to fairs and local parks the next day, as well as street mercados, collecting lesson books on mathematics, grammar, and the like, wondering how I was going to run a classroom with children ranging in age from 3 to 12. That first year, they were much less organized than they would become in the following years. The parochial school was two stories, housing the boys and young men on the upper floor and the women and children on the lower, along with the assorted classrooms used as training facilities for cooking, sewing, and basic computer skills. That first day, I found the children running around the playground, roughhousing, until a young nun appeared offering a game of kickball. The kickball game soon collapsed into chaos, the younger kids in tears, while the older ones continued thrashing each other in pursuit of the ball until the nun was able to retrieve it and then comfort the little ones. The children were in no way timid, and once the ball was out of play, they became curious about the old gringo watching. They made their way over in mass and peppered me with questions. What's your name? Where are you from? Do you speak English? I answered them and asked them the same questions and was treated to a cacophony of names and countries. I asked Isaias about his broken arm, which he and three others reported had occurred when he had climbed onto the roof and fallen on the way back down. He was nine and very proud of his injury. I then pulled out my books and said I was here to teach them some things. Isaias, like most of the older ones, furrowed his brow while the little ones showed curiosity for the colorful lesson books I held in my arms. There was, an, there was no classroom space available, so we simply gathered in a circle and sat down in the cement. In the weeks that followed, the nuns found me a dilapidated portable table and some folding chairs. As a fairly introverted man, disciplining them to just sit down and work proved a huge challenge. I settled for 10-minute spurts and figured it was better than nothing. 
I had read that children who missed school during these formative years fell badly behind, almost exponentially compared to their peers. There was the added challenge of the language barrier, though my Spanish was passable thanks to my son. Gordon loved languages, spoke, with, spoke German and Spanish, and was studying French when I lost him. Even as a kid growing up in Pasadena, he liked to go down to the Mexican and Central American neighborhoods along Orange Grove Boulevard and speak with people and learn new words. He loved Olvera Street and Mariachi Square and he was, when he was little, so I took him off and knowing it wasn't the real Latino LA per se, but it was safe for a kid. As a teenager, he asked me to take him to restaurants in East LA and encouraged me to take night classes to improve my rudimentary Spanish and keep up with his, which was now growing in leaps and bounds through his Spanish classes in school. He wanted total immersion outings where we would speak no English for several hours and how could I deny such enthusiasm? My eyes fill thinking about it. The children at the refugee house that first year were beautiful, undisciplined, stubborn, distracted, and almost impossible to teach. I had my favorites, Manolito and his mischievous grin, broken-armed Isaias, who always knew the score, and no wonder, as it turned out that both his father and uncle had been murdered, and he had spent four days on a bus with no food. He would give me these knowing looks like, watch this, as he proceeded to lightly manipulate the other kids into little conflicts, or believe it or not, into returning to their lessons. Elena I liked because she watched out for the little ones, who were the most vulnerable, like three-year-old Jorge, who clung to my legs and called me Pappy as the snot ran from his nose. He struggled always with the older boys, whether over a crayon or a toy, and he always lost, dissolving into tears. I admired his chutzpah and tried to comfort him as best I could. Gordon had been a quiet child, and his mother had done the heavy lifting of comforting him and working through his occasional tantrums. I regretted that now. My passivity? Perhaps I was making up for it. When I returned a year later, not only had the refugee house moved and tightened its game, there was the doctor now, the psychologist, social workers, even a fundraiser. The nuns had been wise to turn a good deal of the organization over to professionals and approve to everyone's benefit. For, for while they were activist nuns, most were simply full of love, inefficient, and poorly educated. And of course, they were trained Catholics who, who, while they admirably accepted life's shortcomings and imperfections, often did so in situations that were unacceptable and demanded action, not philosophy. The lack of soap, for instance, so the children could wash their hands. When I brought some, I was scolded by a nun who told me that people stole the soap whenever it appeared, and they didn't want, that, they didn't want the strife that followed. Well, if you have enough, I offered, but she only shook her head. Thus, my viewpoint wasn't passive, even if my general, general MO was. I snuck in soap after that, but humbly accepted that I could never build up, run, and organize such a place as they had done. I realized in time that I, too, was in the final analysis, really just another nun on the bucket brigade. At the new facility a year later, there were African children in addition to the Central American kids. But since most spoke French and Portuguese, I was assigned to work with the two little brothers from Honduras, Abelardo and Rodrigo. There were more volunteers now, so the children were more engaged and we could each work with a few instead of just me and a dozen or more as before. I had learned by then that coloring books were my ace in the hole, both as a reward for lessons completed as well as a good starting point for kids who were hard to reach or engage. <coughs> for while children might have <coughs> might give me a look of complete revulsion when i pulled out the grammar books they would smile or even shout with glee when the libros de colorear were presented abilardo and rodrigo were no different once i had them going i would cunningly begin to educate animals led to sounds as these two were quite young discussions about what they ate what their young were called what parts of the world they lived in whether they would make a good pet Abelardo only liked penguins and zebras, and I wonder if there was something to the fact that they were black and white. Who knows? I had since dispensed with Freudian analysis. 
Besides, Abelardo colored his penguins in a rainbow of colors, pink and green penguins frolicked on purple ice, trading blue, yellow, and orange eggs under a red sky. Abelardo was generally sweet-natured, but he would get stubborn and demanding, though he'd usually cap it with a smile, letting me know he meant business, but was strangely aware of the absurdity of his temper. Penguins! More penguins! I don't want these bears and rabbits! And he sometimes went so far as to tear those pages out. <clears throat> Rodrigo was more temperamental and would become defiant if he were not getting his due attention-wise. He generally followed what Abelardo did and adopted his big brother's likes and dislikes, I remembered my own childhood and how my older brothers were proprietary and didn't like me liking what they liked. I could see how for children it could feel smothering and annoying to have someone following you around and copying your every move right down to your preferences, which you were learning were very individualized. Abelardo never seemed bothered, and it touched me how indulgent he was toward Rodrigo, who would actually smack his older brother in his more ornery moments because he needed elbow room or a particular color of crayon that Abelardo was using. Abelardo would wait a short time, then give up the crayon, and never retaliate to the slaps and slights. My older brothers were never so magnanimous. I came to admire Abelardo for it and would tell him he was a very kind big brother and that that was a good thing. But his forbearance seemed more a part of his nature than any conscious effort on his part. Eventually, Abelardo demanded cars, trucks, and trains. At first, I drew them, but I'm not much of an artist. Fortunately, they were young enough to find even my work compelling and long purple buses, longer, longer, more wheels, Abelardo would enthuse, would fill with black and red passengers rolling along on all those yellow wheels like mechanical centipedes. We talked about streets, cities, pedestrians, traffic lights, and rules of the road, which often went unheeded on the streets of the city outside. And it goes on. Anyway, thank you. Gosh, thanks for coming out, everybody, and thanks to Skylight Books. I love this bookstore, and I'm so glad to be here. Um, I work in a bookstore, so when I go to other cities, what I always just do is go visit other bookstores, and that's my idea of fun. Um, I'm going to read from Disasterama, Adventures in the Queer Underground, 1977 to 1997. Whenever you write a book and you want to get it published, you have to develop what is called an elevator pitch, and the elevator pitch for this one, if I can remember, is... It's about coming of age at a time when the manic frivolity of youth collided with the deadly reality of AIDS. There, how about that? Gripping, right? Okay. I'm just going to I'm going to read the um, the introduction and then I'm going to pick a chapter or maybe you'll pick up. We'll see. Introduction. <clears throat> Some people are good in emergencies, others less so. My friends and I were crazy club kids, punk rock nutters, goofy goofballs, fashion victims, disco dollies, happy hustlers, and dizzy twinks. You couldn't count on us to pick up the right carton of milk at the store, let alone file our taxes or remember to take out the trash on Wednesday. We danced with a manic grace of plastic bags caught in the wind, but our bank accounts were empty. We wore clothes that stopped traffic, but few of us knew how to drive. We lived, laughed, and loved like there was no tomorrow never guessing, that for many of us there wasn't. As denizens of what used to be called the underground, does anyone remember the underground? Um, we were prepared for lives full of social exclusion and unrelenting bohemian squalor. We were not prepared for acquired immune deficiency syndrome. It began with newspaper articles full of rare spooky diseases with unpronounceable names and mysterious acronyms, GRID, Pneumocystis, KS, my friends and I didn't pay attention because, well, papers are always full of bad news, right? 
Then the rumors started. A friend of a friend of a friend of a friend went into a hospital with a cough and never came out. A coworker's neighbor dropped in his tracks. That guy who was sitting outside that cafe all the time, gone. Still, we didn't panic. We were barely into our 20s. So healthy and robust, we felt immortal. Our delusions of immunity didn't last long, though. First one friend took ill, then another, then another, and another, and another, and before long we found ourselves in the midst of a pitiless and unstoppable viral scourge. As if we didn't have enough problems already, my friends and I. In those benighted days of yore, wide swaths of the populace believed that all homosexuals were degenerates. In our case, they were basically right, but oh, they were so mean and judgy about it. Everyone I knew was scarred, or at least neuroticized, from family rejection, queer bashing, or just hearing the bigoted blathering of right-wing politicians and televangelists. Unwelcome and respectable society, we descended into the subterranean lavender twilight shadow world of the gay ghetto. There, in dark clubs and dive bars, we frolicked and reveled, utterly determined to wring every last ounce of pleasure and fun from our wretched lives in what little time we had left. Meanwhile, the aforementioned politicians and televangelists took an unspeakably irritating told you so attitude, loudly proclaiming we gays were getting our just rewards. AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals, elucidated President Reagan's good friend, the Reverend Jerry Falwell. It's God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. The resulting climate of paranoid intolerance, along with fear of a rapid and painful death, led many gay men to abandon the hallowed traditions of camp humor, arched asceticism, and sexual anarchy. As if a heaping helping of normalcy might spur the virus and the bigots to leave us all alone. Not so, my friends and I. We doubled down on the queer and assaulted the public with agitprop street theater, drag cabaret, spoken word poetry, performance art, and worse. Our lives became one giant creed occur. We want to live. And yet, during this riot of Rococo rebellion, we kept dying. Then, after a decade and a half of terror and trauma, it ended, or slowed down anyway, when the development of protease inhibitor cocktails sent the death toll plummeting. The general public, at least outside the Bible Belt, decided it didn't hate gays after all, and history marched on to meet its next appointment. The band of merry misfits who'd assembled for mutual support and collective hijinks during the crisis scattered to the winds. People wanted to get on with their lives, not sit around feeling sheltered and tragic. A feigned amnesia prevailed across queerdom, albeit one interrupted by brief sanctioned occasions for dignified mourning. My dead friends, however, were anything but dignified or mournful. The ghosts of sleazy boys in black leather jackets and cackling queens in tacky frocks nagged at me in my dreams. Hey, miss girl, get off your ass and write something fun about us. No one else is doing it. Strangely, this appeared to be true. Sure, the heroic crusades of ACT UP and Queer Nation were well and justly remembered, but the swirling, whirling, daffy and demented fringes of queer social life during the high AIDS era were all but forgotten. When it comes to publicity, my dearly departed friends are not to be denied. So to avoid their posthumous pestering, I wrote this book, the true story of how a bunch of pathologically flippant kids floundered through a deadly serious disaster. You can read it as an elegy, apologia, cautionary tale, or social history, but it's also my memoir, and as such, it will have to begin with me.
Okay, then I'd talk about myself for a long, 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 long time. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I'm going to skip ahead. I'm going to skip ahead. I think I might read something that I normally never read because there is a chapter that takes place in Los Angeles. And I normally never read it, but as a special treat tonight, I will read this. This is chapter 19. And all you need to know is that I have transformed from a, uh, a nerdy, shy, suburban kid to um, a sex worker and um, have been working as an exotic dancer. Um, okay, and years probably 1987. Okay, chapter 19, porn moguls. Exotic dancers are frequently recruited to star in dirty movies, and I was no exception. Legendary gay porn pioneer Toby Ross offered to fly me to the San Pornando Valley to do a film, Tough Guys Do Dance. The title was a takeoff in literary bad boy Norman Mailer's universally reviled film, Tough Guys Don't Dance. I jumped at the chance since it paid nearly two weeks' salary for a single day's work. I didn't have to worry about safety as the gay porn world had firmly embraced condoms, it being universally assumed that any gay boy slutty enough to do porn was surely HIV positive. Toby paired me with a cartoonishly handsome guy, cleft chin, cheekbones, abs, the whole shebang, whose nom de smut was Lon Flex. Ooh la la. Lon played a tipsy bon vivant wearing a tuxedo who, for reasons I forget, wanders into an apartment where I'm sleeping naked on a bed. Transfixed by my he-manliness, he falls to his knees and, well, use your imagination. I wake in the middle of this sexiness and, offended that my heterosexual status has been compromised by a nocturnal blowjob growl, I've killed for less. <laughs> Not having seen the film, I was shocked to read in the BAR review that my voice had been dubbed over by someone who, they said, sounded like George, George Pippard, the guy who starred opposite Audrey Hepburn at Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> I do have one of those voices, you know. It's a <laughs> um, I was also slightly miffed that re they referred to me as scary Caligula lookalike Alvin Eros. <laughs> that they sort of made up for it by also calling me a highlight. Actually, who knows? What, how do they know what Caligula looked like? All right. After the shoot, Lon suggested that if I wanted more film work, I ought to hook up with his agent. A few months later on an L.A. vacation, I called and got myself invited to the agent's house, a pleasant cottage nestled on the leafy side street of some Hollywood hill. Mr. Agent answered the door in white tennis shorts and a white polo shirt. His broad smile revealed frighteningly enormous white teeth, and his head sported a stiff helmet of honey blonde hair. Pleased to meet you, he said with a firm handshake. He led me into a tidy office and asked to see my photos. I handed over some shots I'd had my roommate take in which I leaned against a gold pedestal in front of a draped blood-red curtain. In retrospect, it does seem a bit overwrought. Perhaps the Caligula comparison had gone to my head. <laughs> After examining the photos, Mr. Agent addressed me haltingly. Well, frankly, they, they look a bit arty. I need men who are proud and masculine. He offered to give me a chance on two conditions. First, I had to cut my new wave hairdo, a wild mop of curls, and second, I'd need to lose some weight. Though I'd just been tactfully called a fat femme, I ignored my plummeting self-esteem and promised to drop a few pounds and visit a barber. I was actually lucky he didn't turn me down flat since the porn industry was fast dropping boy-next-door types like me in favor of steroid-built ubermenschen whose humongously beefy muscle bodies were the exact opposite of the AIDS-wasted skeleton everyone feared becoming. As it happened, Mr. Agent was on his way to meet a producer right then and invited me along. After a short ride in his very new, very clean car, we arrived at an unprepossessing house and were greeted at the door by an unremarkable middle-aged man, Mr. Producer. 
Stepping inside, I was deeply dismayed by the living room. Spotless and furnished in faux colonial style, there were surveillance cameras in every corner, lending it a nightmarish authoritarian quality. Over the mantelpiece on which sat photos of bland white people at graduations and weddings hung a stuffed deer's head and a pair of crossed rifles. A set of commemorative china occupied a cupboard on one wall, another was covered by bookshelves holding finely bound classics one couldn't remove because in front of them were dozens of tiny collectible pewter cowboys and Indians arranged as if in battle. The effect was so Republican, I half expected Nancy Reagan to sweep in with a tray of big gooey chocolate chip cookies and that crazy look in her eyes. To hide my aesthetic revulsion, I played with a yipping little terrier that ran up to greet us. Bonding with the dog, I hoped, would make me look wholesome, uncomplicated, and therefore, to the perverted eyes of the porn moguls, attractive. After introductions, we sat at a low coffee table, and Mr. Agent showed Mr. Producer a loose-leaf binder containing lewd photos of the models he'd signed. After a few minutes, I heard a woman's voice singing softly in Spanish. Simultaneously, Mr. Agent and Mr. Producer lowered their voices. The singing grew louder, and they stood up with guilty looks on their faces, grabbed the book, and scurried into the kitchen. I followed just as a stout Hispanic woman wearing an apron came into the room to dust some ceramic ducks. The smut peddlers resumed their work next to the stove, quietly discussing who'd look good sodomizing whom. A moment later, the woman headed into the kitchen, and the men bolted up, closed their binder, and scuttled roach-like into an adjoining laundry alcove. Again, I followed. Hola, said the woman from the kitchen, retrieving a can of lemon pledge from under the sink. Mr. Agent and Mr. Producer waved back with bright, nervous smiles. Hi, Esmeralda. As Esmeralda left, Mr. Producer explained in, whisper, in a whisper, we're not out to the maid. <laughs> to my great surprise, Mr. Producer hired me for a shoot up at the Russian River in two weeks' time. Doing my best to look proud and masculine, enough to deserve my $500, half of what the other models were paid, I later learned. I dieted, got a flat top, and borrowed a plaid shirt from my roommate. If you want to know what making a porn film is like, just pick up three or four guys you've never met off the street, take them home, and set up an orgy under blazing hot lights with several strangers milling around barking directions, and the ground rules that everybody must keep at least one orifice filled at all times and face in the same direction. <laughs> The cutest boy at the Russian River shoot was, to my mind, the still photographer, a quiet, wispy boy with a shock of sandy blonde hair falling over one eye like Veronica Lake. He looked like someone who listened to the Cocteau twins and adopted rescue cats. I developed a slight crush on him that quickly evaporated when, to my everlasting shame, he made me pose in a backward baseball hat with a sleeveless t-shirt emblazoned with a silhouette of the Marlboro Cowboy. I, who so deeply abhors sports and smoking, Fortunately, the stills were never used. I like to think it was because the real me shone through the butch facade, making the pictures insufficiently proud and masculine. Postscript, six years after our shoot, Lon Flex died. He was 30 years old. Okay, thank you. Oh. Q&A time. How about these guys, right? So good. How about Tara? My uh, gosh. Um, well, that wasn't necessary. <laughs> <laughs> OK, pepper us with questions. Let's see. Topics include gay in the 90s, 
sex in the 90s. I just had a um, birthday. I just turned 47, by the way, you guys. And Congratulations. Yeah. My incredible spouse made me a birthday cake, and the theme was 90s sex. So it, he um, made out of, um, what's that called? Sculpey. Um, all sorts of, like, dildos and butt plugs and um, handcuffs and anal beads. It was very exciting. And little people with, like, um, you know, scars and leather hoods and what have you. That sounds really so special. I guess I answered that question for you guys. <laughs> Next question. And that's traditional for 47th birthday? Yes, absolutely. That's the year of the, the rubber year dong. The so <laughs> go ahead and follow suit if you're not 47 yet. Okay, well, a story, a story I don't know. I, I can give a brief description because many of you uh, don't know what he's referring to. He was asking about Uranus Clubstitute and what was else? The other thing, uh, Crystal Pistol. Okay, in San Francisco in the, the mid-1980s, there was, uh, nobody went out because everyone was scared of catching AIDS and people didn't know exactly how it was uh, transmitted and even once it had been discovered that it wasn't transmitted casually, people decided to keep being scared for another 10 years. <laughs> so like there were all these empty clubs. So basically anyone could just kind of march into a club and say, you know, hey, I, I want to have a night here. I'll, you know, just let me charge at the door and I'll bring my DJ and my friends will come. So people who would normally never be allowed to be popular or, or run nightclubs could just run out and have like a scene. And it was, it was very nice for you know, a good decade there. And um, so uh, I, uh, one, one of the things I think that made it really special was that because it was uh, people coming out from the shadows and, 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 and people who hadn't really been uh, allowed to be in popular in public before, there was a huge mix of, of what was I mean, it wasn't just, like, precedingly, you know, there had just been, like, disco. Like, disco's full of, like, hot men, and then there was disco's full of women. And, but then suddenly, men and women actually talking. You remember this. There was actually, like, men and women together, gay men and women together for the first time. And there were, there were people of all the different multifarious genders would come out. And, and um, it was kind of the first time that that really had happened. Um, what do you think made them break through the hesitation or the fear? Um... Well, I think people stopped being afraid in, like, a lot because people thought, that, well, the gay men all thought they were going to die. Even those of us who ended up not dying, we thought we were going to die. So what's there to be scared of, right? It's like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Right, you know, what are you going to do? Kill me? Haha, ha, I'm dying anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I miss that kind of, uh, I feel like that kind of humor was a lot more um, common than, too. Like the, that just sort of like messed up we're all going to die anyway, kind mm -hmm. of like gay humor. I sometimes miss just in the sort of way that people are, you know, changing language or trying to reframe a lot of things so that we have a more thoughtful kind of vocabulary for talking about each other. I was like saying to my friends, I'm going to read with a couple of fags. And then I was like, that just feels like something I would have always said. Yeah. And then I'm like, am I, is that if I'm not talking to someone who's like over 40 and queer from San Francisco, will they just be like, excuse you, <laughs> you know? So anyway. Yeah. So like, um, ACT UP was so effective. And I'm wondering if you can see how that shaped Obamacare or healthcare, uh, the idea of what could be possible in healthcare because it was so demanded by so many smart people at that time. 
Well, certainly a lot of people from, from ACT UP went on to careers in public health and brought with them the idea that everyone deserves access to health care. I mean, I mean, it's, it's not exactly my, my, my forte to know about that. But yeah, I mean, that, I, that's, I've, I've read about people. People have said that. Reputable people. Mm -hmm. People you know. with people with <laughs> people who interact knowledge. with the real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. With good just, Twitter bios. Isn't the smartest, most effective? Um, I know John, you're in New York. Mm -hmm. Just some of the just taking over news stations, mm -hmm. trying to turn a country to let them see that this willing Holocaust mm -hmm. they're creating. I mean, just and the activism to enter that and, and break it open. I just really admire. But one of the things that a, a friend of mine was saying the other day was, you know, because I, I was lamenting the current political situation as I want to do seven or eight times a day. And um, she reminded me that, you know, the world has ended before. It felt like the world was ending at that point and we did survive and, and come out the other end. It's not that the world's ever going to be great, but, you know, it's, it's, we can take uh, solace, I guess, or, or derive hope from the fact that, yeah, the most horrible thing that could happen that was happened and here we are so there's a, there's a new play out called inheritance i think have you heard about that play yeah, yeah and there's a line in there that says donald trump is hiv mm -hmm. like he's sort of like the country it's an interesting image mm -hmm. i mean it's obviously not um it's a it's an analogy but it's kind of interesting because it makes everybody wake up to like okay mm -hmm. you know Well, it was a brief moment where being sexy was political because there was even a, a group called um, Boys with Arms Akimbo, and they yeah. were like an activist group. And like, they had this little image of this little boy like standing here like this, and they would go around and put up posters that said "Sex is," and that was a political statement. And at that point in the '90s, because so many people were like "Sex," ah, and they just said "It is," and um, it all. It also made it int interesting to organize because these guys are organizers. And because, you know, when, when ACT UP was having uh, actions, it would be like people would go like, well, there might be some cute guys there. So, like, it was easy to organize because it was a way to, like, you might get a date out of it, which was really nice because as much as it was difficult, it's like, well, yeah, that's true. And I had one friend who would, he would just take pictures. And he'd come back and he'd go, oh, he took pictures of the demonstration. He goes, yeah, look at this guy. And I'd go, wait, this isn't the demonstration at all. It's just the people he saw. But, you know, you use whatever you could. Yes, Kristen. When was the first time you went to Mexico City? And what is the queer scene like there compared to Mexico City? That's interesting, because the first time I went there was in the 90s, and the queer scene was totally underground. And in fact, there wasn't even much AIDS activism. This would be like 96. There, there would be signs from the church, you know, Sita kills, you know, stay with your wife, type, and they'd show families. It was really, you know, strange. but. So it was very kind of closet and all that. And now Mexico City, I mean, not all of Mexico, but Mexico City is super open. You see people walking around, holding hands and everything. It's almost queerer than American cities. But the rest of the country, it's not like that so much, you know. But it's, it's come a long way. Latin America's weird. It sort of went from like zero to 60 with the queer thing. It was like really repressive. And then in the last few years, almost everywhere, you know, there's gay marriage in Argentina. There's gay marriage in Mexico City, not all of Mexico, but <clears throat> in, I, I think, the state of Mexico. So it's interesting to see how it's changed, yeah. 
around town. Uh, sounds Mexico familiar. Yeah. Who is that? Question. Well, the first the first time anyone knew that people were dying of AIDS was eighty one. It actually was probably around a couple of years before that, and then it kept going, like exponentially more and more people kept dying up until 1995. Then in 1996, the protease inhibitors came out and the, I mean, it didn't, it never went, it's still happening. I mean, we're still in the middle of an AIDS crisis, but um, uh, 96, 97 was when the death rate really plunged in America for people who had access to health care, which was not everybody, but yeah. I remember that because I worked at my tree. I worked at a hospice in San Francisco, and we went from mm -hmm. from people sort of this is such a terrible phrase, but people reliably dying within three months to it being like I remember the first person who just kept living, and mm -hmm. everyone being all, "Oh, the care model here has to change the um, mm -hmm. the fund because it was also all low income except for like one bed. There mm -hmm. was um, out of fifteen beds, we went from eight to eight to fifteen beds." that they had to change the way they got funded or wrote grants or mm -hmm. anything um, because suddenly people were sticking around and they had to like create a protocol for people going home then and um, it was wild. Mm -hmm. It was really wild. Well, creating a new name for yourself was kind of de rigueur in the, uh, yeah. the underground back then and uh, not because people were ashamed, I don't think. I think it was just you wanted to be fun and kicky and have a great name. So my friend Michael Joseph Collins, which is a very generic name, uh, changed his name to Diet Popstitute. And Diet Diet was supposed to be a combination of Princess Di and E.T. And, <laughs> and Popstitute was the name. <laughs> yes. Uh, and Popstitute was the name of the of the band slash performance art that we were that we were in. So he ended up with the name Diet Popstitute. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, a lot of the book is about him, and he was kind of my soulmate, and mm -hmm. so losing him was uh, was a big deal for me, and I, I kind of felt that if by any chance, I, you know, I wasn't raised religious, but if there was like a one in a thousand chance that I'm going to go to heaven and he's going to be there waiting for me, if I were to show up without having written a book about him, he would be kind of mad, and he would be like, <laughs> he, he wouldn't take it nicely. But Alvin, you sort of wrote another book with him in Gutter Boys. That's true, that's yeah. true, yeah. Which is the, the, the younger Connecticut version, right? Before right. <laughs> he was diet, so the actual yeah. Michael Collins guy, right. you can find out more about him. But like many people, you know, when he, when he got his new identity, he the old one really disappeared. So, yeah. More, more questions. Any more? You guys um, all know each other from back then. Did you hang out back then? Did you work together? How did, how did you guys? Well, there were a lot of open mics and reading series uh, throughout San Francisco, like maybe like five times as many as there are now. Uh, back what the late '80s through the early '90s. Yeah. And um, in fact, I think even in the through the uh, late '90s, maybe through the late '90s too. Yeah, and and, and uh, yeah, and so we were always going out and doing that, and it's free fun. And I mean, you should all go to the, all the reading series now too, because it's uh, just a great way to meet people. And um, so yeah, Paradise yeah. Lounge used to have a reading, and oh, that's yeah. that's how I met Alvin because we were in the same book that. Mm -hmm. um, Jennifer Joseph, who ran that reading, and there's another Manic D author back there, Bucky Sinister. Yes. Um, she decided to do a queer book, because there weren't that many queer people in the scene, you know, and she said, oh, I want to do a, a queer book, so 
we got together all the people who were out there. So that's how I first met Alvin. Um, he had a story in there, yeah. And I, you know, I knew Alvin from the clubs dude thing because I would go, but I would always kind of, I was always a little bit more like hanging back because Alvin was kind of the star. You'd be like playing piano or keyboards no, or I don't something. Play that. No, am I, I just making piano. that up? You're but, making that up. I don't play. But he was part of. He was much more like one of the people who was putting the thing on. So. Uh, I knew who he was, you know, so finally meeting him was cool, yeah, because he was an inspiration. And Tara Jepsen was also ran Kvetch, which mm -hmm. was a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, op open mic slash reading series. And actually, there's a tie-in here is that Brontes Purnell, who's another great writer who you should all read, who wrote a book <laughs> called Since I Laid My Burden Down, he... Um, I think this is actually before he was a writer. He didn't he hadn't written anything. I just we went out to Kvetch together, and at some point he he asked me what was it like when everyone started dying, and no one had ever asked me that before. He was like a little too young for the per, for the for the the plague. He he kind of missed it. He got here after it was all over, or or winding down. So he asked me that, and and I was like, uh, and then I, I wrote this book sort of as a uh, a response. So, yeah. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. And actually, the last time I saw Tara was at a Kvetch. Tara. Tara. Yeah. Was at a, <laughs> I keep saying it, um, was at a Kvetch meeting with Kirk Reed, who I just mm -hmm. saw three days ago in Portland, which is just kind of weird that God, I love we're, we're all seeing each other. Yeah. Now. Yeah, he was fun. It was always fun to host something with someone like him who had no filters whatsoever <laughs> with what he said. So, like, no matter what you did, I what you did in that room, you would never be as foul as Kirk was. <laughs> really opened up the floodgates for, for gay writing. Okay, we'll take a few more. One, two, three, and then we'll <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, okay. how did it feel to, to go through this AIDS era and then to see gay marriage? I mean, did it feel you know, I, I, I never thought about marriage. Um, I don't know. It's uh, It just never occurred to me. I mean, I guess I, 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 I'm lying because I wrote a book called I Married an Earthling, which is about a teenage goth who marries an extraterrestrial, has a gay marriage with an extraterrestrial. But, um, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. It, uh, it does feel schizophrenic, but it's, it's, it's nice to be on the other side of, of all that prejudice. But, you know, I was at the reading, the opening reading for this, and a woman came up, and she had, was an immigrant from Peru, and she's like, "Now we're getting it," and I'm like, "You know, hang on. Eventually, they'll ch choose someone else." I mean, there's, it, it's a, uh, it's just so, it's just so dispiriting. But, um, you know, it's different groups of people are going to be are going to be suffering from prejudice at different times, and who knows, maybe they'll switch back to gays and hating gays again, I don't know. Some yeah, people, I mean, it's, people need to hate, you know? Yeah, so. and I mean, it's a, certain, it's a certain acceptance, a certain legal acceptance in civil rights thing. It's really important, so everybody kind of recognize that, but I think there's kind of two narratives in the gay scene, too, like the, the outlaw one and then the more mainstream acceptance one, and so they're kind of the two sides of it, because I think like what, what Alvin was a part of there was really the outlaw thing, and then if you were involved in AIDS activism and stuff, you started to really embrace the fact that <clears throat> we're this other outlaw group of people that is being killed, right? So it's a little bit hard to go from that to like marriage and <laughs> normalcy. So I, th I still think it's a, it's, a, it's a discussion that happens in the, um, 
in the gay scene, you know, about I know, I feel like the, the most people, uh, most of my friends, probably a lot of people we know, that didn't feel like anything particularly interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, that it was like a sort of mainstreaming kind of um, behavior or institution or like I definitely felt like, you know, I was doing something ultra normal when I married my my person, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it just didn't fit in that sort of like outsider mentality where you're like, I don't trust what that is. And I don't care. I love weddings. I love all, a lot of gross, normal stuff. And I just, but I think like it's probably important to say that probably so few of us would position that as a counterpoint to what we'd experienced. More you, I'm a little younger than you, so I feel like I can't fully uh, say that I was part of it because I wasn't. It was more like in the 90s when I was working in this hospice or whatever that I became more like close or, or more intimate with that, um, with a crisis or whatever, the plague. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah. You're like, well, yeah. nothing we did was ever just sort of like a build-up to getting married. <laughs> and yet I worked at a hospice, too, and you would see people who were dying where they didn't have the legal protection of, oh, like, God, a spouse. Yeah. And so you realize it's really important. It's not very sexy or interesting, but I have to support it and do what I can because yeah. there are times where people would just get, like, left out of, a, um, you know, their... their their inheritance, or 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 yeah. they or people couldn't make decisions for the person they cared about because they weren't next kid, and, so, and families did place. some terrible things, you know, to protect their yeah. uh, child, so called. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not trying to sound awesome. Yeah, no, but like I mean, I immediately went to the. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I feel the same, but it's just like I, I kind of no, reluct- yeah. reluctantly it was like this is really necessary as much as I wish it kind of you know it's kind of like brushing your teeth. I'd rather never brush my teeth, but I realize it's really important that yeah, my teeth yeah. will fall out. Yeah. So we're there gonna we're gonna do it. We're gonna support tooth brushing. Yeah. Going with that. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. So. I agree. It does. It affords the legal protections that we want yeah. to care about. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. With sweater. Yes. You're like, first we gotta stop dying. Well, remember there was domestic partnership. It was like a slow. Mm-hmm. Then there were civil unions. There were little things that were happening slowly. But like San Francisco had domestic partners pretty in the 90s, you know. And you could get you could get certain things. Like you could get your partner's health benefits if they worked for a corporation or something. There were little things like that. But it wasn't, you know. So it had begun. Um, I didn't even know. I mean, there are people actually in the audience here who had great. <laughs> Felice Picano was here. He had a lot of great uh, gay gay books published back in the seventies. I didn't really start trying to write until the eighties, and back then um, there was a really easy route to kind of feeding yourself into the literary world: zines, where you just yeah. Xerox and chapbooks, uh, and chapbooks, yeah. where you just kind of self-produce <laughs> writing. And it was fun, and you know, the quality was obviously going to be, you know, up and down because there was no 
editing. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's how I got into it. But yeah, now, now, then the early 90s, wait, the early 90s, there was a big surge in gay publishing, right? And and Yeah, like it was kind of hot in the 80s and early 90s. Yeah, and then, and then, big and publishers then it, were interested. it unhotted because everyone decided yeah. that David Sedaris was all they needed because he's so <laughs> funny. And he is, and he is, and he is. And he but, is. And he is, but We thought there was another question out there coming our way. <laughs> Kristen. Do you feel like your writing has changed since 2016? 2016? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I just... Everything's changed. Yeah. Feel more serious or more like... Mm -hmm. I feel like I was thinking about um, this, like novel that I've been working on a little bit here and there and I was like oh it's so dark and it's so like I feel like the narrative is entirely into in service of like just my feelings of of wanting to die <laughs> you know half the time or feeling like I'm um profoundly depressed by <laughs> so much stuff so yeah like I love what I'm writing but even reading this tonight which uh, was published in 2017, I was like, oh, I would have said that so differently now, you know, or would have, like, uh, just written the story differently or my perspective, or, or I don't know, it was really funny reading it and being like, just there were moments that I had a lighter touch that I maybe would now or something. I, yeah, I think for sure. I just want to joke about, like, dead people dying, you know, all the time, just things that are very grim that, that like, maybe before I would have been hesitant to say out loud, and now I'm like, I think a lot of people can relate to or understand what that's driving at, which is just this, this feeling of, of stress. Yeah. It's an interesting question, because I think in some ways, like, going back to what you said about People thought it was the end of the world then, and they think it's the end of the world now. And in some ways, I kind of feel like literature, if you will, is kind of kind of the long haul. So sometimes I think it's not changing mm -hmm. because I feel like it's bigger than what's going on in our government, or it's bigger than this awful stuff that's going on. And yet it, I think it's impossible for it not to sort of infiltrate. And I probably do feel like a little darker than, than before. And uh, I, I read a little bit of journalism, and I'm trying to keep that that angry, you know, at the fucked upness of things in that realm and away from, I almost want to protect my writing from some of the stuff that's going on, you know? Because, like, it's an assault on language, what's happening with the whole Twitter thing, and it's like, it's really like an attack on intelligent discourse, which you don't want to give up, right, you know? Referring to the president or the government or, you know, we're referring to how your writing has changed. Like, she was asking, how has our writing changed since 2016? So I was kind of talking about how it's a, maybe affected. I'm kind of thinking out loud because, yeah, it's a good question. I found myself forgiving a lot of people in my past mm. because I just I didn't have any hate left over from, you know, after you read the newspaper, it's just all my anger and hatred has been so focused on one particular person whose name I shan't mention. <laughs> um, that, and, and the people behind him. But um, they're just what, you know, I was like, okay, yeah, dumb kids doing dumb things, someone made, said something stupid 30 years ago, whatever. You know, it's like, you know, it, 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 it made me feel much more charitable towards everybody else in the universe.
Yeah, there's, you know, uh, Matt Bernstein Sycamore, a.k.a. Matilda, wants to do an anthology of, like, the trauma of coming out into the AIDS epidemic, which would we'd qualify for. And I think it's a really good idea, because I think a lot of it is, like, you don't think about it, but it's it's there. Like, just coming out and going, you're just coming out into death, sort of, well, I'm probably going to die, and, you know, um, it was bad enough accepting yourself for being queer, and now it's like, oh, now there's also a deadly disease I get with my coming out card or whatever, and... So it was really depressing and uh, what's the opposite of life affirming? Like death affirming, or, you know? So I think it was a trauma. So I think it was a trauma that we kind of carry around and we manifested in different ways. Some people manifested in really destructive ways. Other people just, um, <clears throat> I guess, don't talk about it. But I feel like people are starting to talk about it right now, which is why I'm glad that um, Matilda wants to do this book because I think it's a book that needs to happen. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. you know, whenever you showed up and you went to speak, uh, I was, we were afraid to ask who, about all the people. It's like, oh, have you heard of yeah. so? And it's like, you would avoid it. It's like, yeah. And there was a weird urgency, too. Like, sometimes you'd say, just do whatever you plan on doing because you may not have a chance to do it. So there was a sense of being almost like you were always thinking about dying tomorrow, which is a good way to live now, you know. I mean, th that just sort of intensified it. Um, I think the last performance was 1994, right before Diet. Diet died in hmm. 1995. And, uh... Uh, no, no. No, I don't know. I remember seeing it, and they already had, like, a memorial. Which film do you mean? The, uh... Was that what it's called? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, Vegas in Space. Vegas oh. in Space. Oh, well, Vegas in Space is a great, great, great yeah. film that Philip R. Ford put... Mm -hmm. that, that's not a Popstitute's project, but that was a great film. And the two stars... Um, Dolores Fish. And Dor Doris Fish Doris and, Fish. and Tippy, Tippy yeah. the world's oldest living child star, Tippy. Um, they both died just a few weeks before it actually the uh, the the premiere at the Castro oh. Theater. Just a few weeks, and you yeah. know, and it took them like ten years to make this film. And oh. so it was, it's a very cool film. Yeah, yeah. it's very campy. And the, one of the great lines I always remember is Doris Fish says she sets down all the laws. They take over this planet. These drag queens take over this planet. And she, she goes through and says this and this, and you can't do this. And then at the end, she says, and anybody wearing beige will be shot on sight. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny you asked that, though, because I was saying it's because I'm sometimes in this kind of stand-up world, I go in and out of doing that. And there's all these, like, women younger than me who are, who I feel like as much as making jokes about the length of CVS receipts are the jokes about I'm bisexual. And... Like, I have totally found myself being, like, <clears throat> with a lot of them. And I've been ruminating about this, being like, what is my damage? Like, why am I patrolling these other people's lives? Who cares? But I'm always like, you haven't suffered. Like, what the fuck are you talking They're You're mainly in straight relationships, and you're in Dubai now. You know, like, it's it's. I have this really judgmental feeling about people. I'm like, 
because I think also when I moved to San Francisco when I was 23 and because there was this whole like, and probably partly stemming out of that time, even though women and queer women were impacted so differently by um, the crisis and everything going on, but that there was such this like rush to like show that you were just a fucking, um, that sex was, was radical with us and that and that it was like not it was also fighting the kind of sister side by side scissoring situation that was the way that queer women or lesbians were characterized and stuff that that like we were constantly like stringing each other from the ceiling and with hooks and breaking toilets fucking on them and doing just like everything to ruin our body you know there was always someone getting like fisted on top of a car at pride and there was things were just like we were always wrecking our bodies to kind of prove that they weren't precious in this certain way that was um the way we felt that women's bodies had been um, regarded in lesbian sort of whatever history or something. I don't, you know, whatever that word is. But I feel like, so I see these younger women, and I'm not saying I'm right. This is a garbage way to think. But I really do just look at them and I'm like, you're not, that's not interesting. Like, it's not, like, fuck whoever you want. But what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with yourself or your body? Or what are you really, what chance are you taking? And I just don't know that it's a very good, it's not a good social metric. It's maybe just my own. In their, in the, in the way they have sex. Yeah. So not my business (laughs) at all. But you know, it was, it was our business in our like culture and world in queer San Francisco in that time. So it was, yeah. Does the, Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I'm just some bozo-looking white lady. Like, it's an, there's nothing that, that it would really, you know... I'd yeah, I think it felt like it, it cost something back then more so. Like, this is really costing me a lot to come out or to be queer or whatever, so I better get something for it. So it made you kind of more like, yeah. I'm going to go take life. You're going to, like, know? floor it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because this is, this is costing me a lot, and I need to get something back for all this cost whereas now if it doesn't cost much to be like it doesn't cost so much to be queer in a big city like this it's like so you just kind of float along you know so i recommend you move to saudi arabia (laughs) (laughs) be costly Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Y
Yeah. I see what you're saying. So we probably have room for like. Yeah, just like you're saying. Yeah. Exactly, right. Like you said, there's plenty of battles. Yeah. Yeah, let's wrap it. You guys, what an incredible attention span. Yeah. Is there is there any one last question? <laughs> any any one last question? Or going once, going twice. No. All right, all right, Tim. Okay. Yes. Is it about an assault defense worker? And Johnny, would you love me if my dick were bigger? That one too. Yeah. Which is a better title. <laughs> pretty great. They're both pretty great. But his band, The Younger Lovers, is playing at the Speedway's bathhouse on the Friday after Thanksgiving, which is in Berkeley. In Berkeley, yeah. Which is like, since when do they have rock bands at bathhouse? In fucking Steamworks. Mm. Well, since B Bette Midler and Barry Manilow, right? They got their start in gay bathhouses. Uh, right, maybe not since then. <laughs> then it, yeah, yeah. So the, uh, bringing it back. The new yeah. <laughs> there you go. He'd love that. Yeah. <laughs> he totally would. It's on a tight once every four years schedule right yes. now. Yes. Huh. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.